there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hi there. This is another episode of the 1% Better Podcast, as you know. And in this episode, I talk with David Saunders. So David is originally from Curry. He's a teacher in Cork and is a member of the Ireland Amputee football team. In the conversation, David talks about his life growing up in Curry, being massively interested in sport. But at the uh, very young age of 11, he was diagnosed with bone cancer in his ankle and that resulted in an amputation. Only a year later, uh, the cancer returned, which again resulted in a second amputation, which David talks through, goes into details around the challenges around this. And he talks about developing resilience uh, and being positive. We also talk about David's work as a teacher, he, how he's bringing mindfulness into class, and we go into details around the Ireland amputee national team that David is a member of, how he got involved with that, the lease of life it's given him, so that he's really involved in a, in a team sport, something that he, he was really missing out on, I guess, from, from that young age. We also talk about how David recently started to give talks on his own story and how he links his own journey to resilience, motivation, developing the discussion around mental health, which is obviously growing, uh, but still a lots of more work to be done there. Releasing this episode now in, in the middle of May. May is Mental Health Awareness Month in Ireland, so that's timely. If you'd like to connect with David, uh, you can do so. Just check out the show notes. Uh, his email address is there. It's uh, youngsaunders at yahoo.ie. He's on Twitter, David Saunders 82 He also wants to put a shout out and did put a shout out on the show for the Irish amputee football team and how they're looking for always looking for new members so there's a, a website there also in the show notes you can check in on that I, I leave it there you know I really want you to listen and enjoy the story uh, that David shares and again thanks David for for giving his time for this it's a, it's a really interesting story and thanks for that Hi folks, this is uh, another episode of the 1% Better podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Um, I'm here today with David Saunders. Welcome, David. Thanks for coming to my studio. Thanks very much, Rob. As very a, fancy. It is a very fancy studio. <laughs> I've even put a, a cloth on the table this time around to see if we can reduce the uh, the noise bouncing off the place. But um, Perfect. So David, in the intro, I would have given you a little bit of a, a an overview, but maybe Maybe for the listeners to hear a bit about yourself, uh, where you're at right now, if you want to take that away. Yeah, so um, my name is David Saunders and um, I play with the um, Irish amputee team. So um, I lost my leg at a young age to bone cancer. Um, we'll probably touch on that a little bit later on. But uh, at the moment, I suppose I'm training hard towards the European Championships in October, um, which take place in Turkey. Um, and amputee football is uh, a sport that's it's one of the fastest growing sports in the world actually at the moment right it's played in I think over 40 countries and growing and um, the Irish Amputee Football Association was set up a number of years ago um, I suppose about five or six now at this stage hmm. and uh, we play from all over the country and it's it's a, a game that's played on crutches um, hmm. so we're all all the outfield players are uh, lower limb amputees right. and the goalkeeper are upper limb amputees, so they're missing an arm essentially. So okay. it's, it's an unusual sport. Um, we play on crutches, so there's a lot of, I suppose, upper body strength and conditioning required. Mm. And I discovered it a number of years ago, and I suppose it's it's changed my life really. Um, mm. It's been fantastic. Cool. 
definitely I'd like to get into talk a bit about a game and yeah. and certainly the European Championships coming up. I didn't I wasn't aware you had mm. qualified, so that mm-hmm. should be should be interesting to to know about that. Which we normally do in the shows to kind of go back to the start. Absolutely, uh, yeah. So maybe where you come from, mm-hmm. you know, as you were growing up, um, yeah. what you were interested in, and you know, as we were talking offline, I think it was around eleven when, yeah, when, you know, when you got cancer. So it'd be it'd be very interesting to hear mm. your story from there. So look, I suppose I'm from, I'm a Kerry man, I'm from Rathmore, which is, um, it's on the border with Cork, but it's it's on the right side of the border. Okay. So very much Kerry man. And um, so I suppose growing up, I would have been, sport was a huge part of my life. Um, my dad would have represented Kerry um, in Gaelic football. He won a minor All-Ireland in mm-hmm. 1963 with them and he represented them at senior level as well. And um, I suppose playing football with Rathmore growing up, um, I had aspirations to go on and do something similar, you know, that was the mm. dream or that was the plan. Um, I would have played on teams with Aidan O'Mahony and um, the likes of players like that growing up. Um, and, you know, I had huge hopes to go on and, and represent Kerry at some stage. Uh, I also would have uh, played soccer then as well at local level uh, with a team called QPR. So they're, they're <laughs> it was Quarry Park Rangers as right. opposed to Queen Park, Queens Park Rangers. Okay. And um, I was... I suppose I, I represented Kerry as well in athletics, um, mm. long distance running, sprinting, long jump, things like that. So like sport was everything to me growing Sounds up. Sounds like a, it. A huge, huge part of my life. Yeah. Um, then I suppose around 1994 when I was 11, uh, I was on the schoolyard with um, at break time with a friend of mine well, with, with the school, with the whole class. I suppose we were playing soccer and mm. the usual. And um a ball just came into me and I just kind of controlled it. And I don't know, I was probably watching at the time Ryan Giggs was a big favorite of mine. And mm. I just went to back heel the ball, just trying to, trying to be, trying to be classy and, and smart and just went to back heel the ball. But uh, a friend of mine just had his, his foot behind the ball and my leg kind of jammed and mm. um, it just felt like a sprain. It just felt like it sprained my ankle. Nice. Um, so I just went down and, you know, it was sore, but nothing crazy. And, um, Anyway, my, my teacher at the time just felt that it warranted a, a phone call home. So I was right. taken home for the day. Sure, I was I was thrilled getting a day off school. Okay. So went home, t- uh, feet up and chilling out for the day. And that was kind of the start of it, really. And then I suppose over the next few days, um, it still appeared to be like a sprain. There was a little bit of swelling. It was very tender, but it just didn't improve. Mm. Um, so... I suppose a couple of days later, you know, my parents decided to take me to the local GP mm-hmm. and he examined it. And um, like prior to that, I was an extremely, he- I'd say, I honestly think that was my first trip to the doctor at 11 years of age. I was extremely healthy. I yeah. had nothing else. None of the, the usual, you know, childhood kind of illnesses, even things like mumps or measles or yeah. anything like that. Um, so he just said, look, it seems to be extremely tender. So we'll we'll send you for an x-ray. And um I went for an x-ray then to Tralee and... Um, he didn't think anything more of it at that point, did he? He didn't. All he said was, like, he was suspecting um, a fracture or okay. maybe a break. More more so a fracture because he mm. felt if it was a break, it might have been more painful. But yeah. um, it was quite tender to the touch. Right. So he suspected a fracture. So we went in, we had our x-ray and... Um, the x-ray came back anyway and they felt that I had something called osteomyelitis, which is, it's a, it's an infection. It's a bone infection, mm-hmm. uh, which is quite serious in its own right. Um, so I was admitted to Tralee General Hospital and I was, I received intravenous antibiotics for a number of weeks because mm-hmm. that, that was a treatment for it. So it meant being mm-hmm. hospitalized. So even that in itself was fairly traumatic yeah. because suddenly you're, you know, you're, 
you're taking over your home environment and you're you're in hospital and mm. uh, and for a number of weeks I think it was about a month you know um, and I suppose the bottom line was I was receiving these very strong intravenous antibiotics but my ankle wasn't improving right uh, and then subsequently they were kind of keeping an eye on this they still felt that they were treating me for the right uh, ailment or condition and um, but subsequently then a, a lump started to appear on the joint on the ankle itself mm. so um, they felt that this required further investigation and they they went to drain it essentially they thought that there was fluid in it on yeah. the on the joint but when the, when they dr- went to drain it basically blood came back into the syringe or whatever implement they were using and they that started to kind of ring the alarm bells then right and this wasn't anything that showed up in in blood tests at this point anyway, no no, no it wasn't like um so what happened then rob was um they decided that they'd have to send me for a biopsy so I left with my parents. I left Tralee General Hospital early one morning. We went up to Temple Street Hospital in Dublin for mm-hmm. a biopsy. And um, again, initial test there that I was x-rayed and stuff there again. And they still felt, look, this looks very like osteomyelitis. Mm. So I had my biopsy. And uh, unfortunately, then that revealed something far more sinister. And uh, it turned out I had osteosarcoma, right. which is, it's a very rare form of bone cancer. Right. Uh, now, in saying that, it's very prevalent in um, in children or teenagers, young, young preteens or teenagers. Um, mm. So, I suppose. And you, do they have any idea even how that might have manifested or anything? Not necessarily. I suppose it's just it's one of those things. I mean, the the injury, we we'll say, hurting my ankle in the schoolyard that day, that just brought it to the fore. Right. Like it was always it was there. Go, there. Yeah, it was yeah, all. Yeah. It was kind of not dormant, but it was going to happen. It was okay. going to emerge. But that kind of sometimes an injury, and subsequently from meeting guys amputees on my team and the Irish yeah. team, and especially the English team, um, who we'd speak to on occasion, a lot of those guys would have had a, would have a very similar story to me. Pick up right. an injury playing sport, and then it just reveals this mm-hmm. cancer. Okay. Um, so, like I suppose, if you can imagine, you know, sport is my whole life, and sure. and just being from I think a rural area as well, and you're suddenly you're plunged into this darkness of this very different world, and mm. you're up in Dublin. I think that was literally my first time going to Dublin, mm. you know, and um, it's just it was like your world crumbles, and mm. I mean, I suppose. No, I'm a primary school teacher now myself. I yeah. think I can, I now look and think, I suppose, what my parents went through and how difficult and traumatic it was for them and yeah. my sisters. I have three sisters. Yeah. Like it was just, it was devastating really. Mm. Uh, so then... Even at 11 though, you know, how much sense, you, you know, you're, you're you're conscious and aware of probably yeah. just there and then maybe not looking too far forward mm. of the consequences of, of that potentially yeah. do you know it was it was funny and I don't know if it's my personality or if it's um, I'm not sure what it was but uh, I was very much in the know and I, I I was very much in the know in terms of the enormity of the situation right first of all and I was also very much in the know in terms of the doctors shared everything with me so like Basically, I had the same information that my parents had. Right. And I was actually struck by that at the time because like in a way I was like, Jesus, do I need to be knowing this? But mm. I was actually glad that that's to this day I kind of like, you know, no matter what's going on, I kind of like to have the full okay. picture. Okay. Uh, so like then I suppose they were talking about, you know, the road I had to go down in terms of treatment, treatment and, yeah, and yeah. what the prognosis was. So mm. um, I just noticed that 
you know, there was obviously talk of chemotherapy and I mean, I was 11 years of age. I didn't quite understand what chemotherapy was. And mm. there was talks of this treatment, which would help attack the cells. And mm. so there was talks of chemotherapy to reduce the size of the tumor. That was the initial conversation. And then slowly but surely the word amputation started to right. be dropped into conversation. Right. And um, I mean, when I heard that initially, I was like mm. totally, I remember that conversation Shock. with two two particular young doctors yeah, I was shocked. I was like, Jesus, I knew I was in trouble, but this is just, mm. I didn't realize that, you know. Mm. And the tumor, was it in localized at this stage? In the it was, it was just like, it was, it was on the ankle, but like, and it was, it was growing rapidly. Like by the time I had my amputation, um, my lower limb, my first amputation, uh, it had grown to the size of like a large grapefruit. And you have to bear in mind, now oh, this is an 11 year old child. It was mm. massive. Like it was just, it actually... The tumor actually grew to such a size that that the bro the bone actually cracked under the weight of it. It grew rapidly, so even the chemotherapy it wasn't shrinking it. So I started to look. I suppose to get back yeah. to what I started my chemotherapy. Uh, there was talks of the amputation. Um, the chemotherapy, while it made me very sick and you know, um, I suppose it's very nauseous and things like that. You lose your hair. I dropped weight. Mm. Extremely sick. Um, and all this was still in Dublin? Still all this. So, so I had my treatment in treatment right. in Crumlin, mm. Children's um, the Children's Hospital in Crumlin, under a fantastic doctor there, um, Dr. Finn Burnock. Uh, he was exceptional. Mm. And um, I recently actually just made contact with him again. He's retired mm. now. but So it was great to make contact with him because um, I think from his point of view, it's nice to see this. Some of his patients have gone on and yeah. have, you know, or st- lived to tell the tale and sure. so on and are doing okay. So, um, yeah. but I had my treatment there. Um, so the chemotherapy... Um, was very harsh, obviously very difficult. And again, it just meant traveling from Kerry to Dublin regularly. And then in between chemo sessions, then because chemotherapy, well, especially you have to remember this is 20 odd years ago as well. It wasn't as refined as it is now. Um, but it really was fairly, um, I suppose it was, it was very harsh in the body. And obviously it can't differentiate between the good cells and the bad cells. Mm. So in between sessions, then if I got a, if I got a cough or a cold, I'd have to be, it's gone. It's gone. So like I had to be hospitalized, even with something. I remember there were occasions where I just got a temperature, whereas normally your body can fight that and remedy itself and sort itself out. I couldn't, my body couldn't. So I was hospitalized with things like that. So I just spent a whole load of time in hospital. Mm. Um, Then I suppose uh, the, there came a point where they were talking to me about my options again. And, um, you know, there was talks of maybe saving the ankle. And I had seen a couple of people that had this surgery where their ankle would be saved, um, but they weren't walking well or like the prognosis still wasn't very good. And like some of the people I'd seen that had that sur- surgery subsequently went on to have recurrences of the of the same issue. And mm. some of them didn't make it, unfortunately, and passed away with the exact same illness. So... I suppose it was, there came a day anyway to, yeah. to bring it to a point where um, I had a conversation with the doctors and they kind of, they left me. Now I was probably being directed down that road, but they did, they asked me and I, I like, I'll never forget it. I was 11 or whatever. And they said, look, mm. do you think we should, do you think we should amputate? Do you want us to amputate? And I said, yeah. And, and the reason I said, yeah, was because I suppose I felt I'd rather sacrifice the limb and have, have a more positive prognosis than, um, than maybe as I said, looking at some of the other children around me who mm. I was friendly with that, that didn't make it and um, had other types of surgery. Did your parents let you fully make that choice yourself? Or how like, I suppose, I suppose I was, I suppose I was being, I was being led down that path in a way, like with mm. the best will in the world by sure. the doctors and by my parents, yeah. I suppose. 
maybe by asking me the question, they were giving me ownership over it in some small way to mm. to help me, I suppose, cope with the the mm. decision and to help mm. me cope with the enormity of the situation. Mm. Um, but I was ready for it. And I said, look, I and there is a sense as well. You know, you kind of feel like your body's letting you down a little bit. And yeah. for me, I really, I wanted it gone, if that makes sense. I yeah, just yeah. wanted, I said, Jesus, just get this away and I'll start again. Mm. And um, so I had my amputation in July 95. Right. And, um, uh, you know, after surgery, then I, I actually, there was an epidural in place for pain control. It was a, morph- a morphine drip and very difficult initially, um, I suppose, with pain and um, phantom pain as well mm. and I still suffer with that a little bit to, to this day uh, where you can just get sensation or yeah, pain yeah. Where, where your limb is no longer yeah, there um, I suppose yeah it's it's just your your mind is so used to having a limb there that it takes a while before your mind catches up with your body so to yeah. speak yeah. so slowly I started to rebuild things again and I had more chemotherapy after the surgery and um, you know then chemotherapy ended treatment ended and I was back back restore back to full health mm. um and life slowly started getting back to normal mm. like what uh, were those kind of things that obviously getting back into school and kind yeah of adjustment back in what were the biggest toughest things around then that you kind of recalled i suppose look you're you're at a vulnerable age you're 11 12 you're kind of you know you're becoming a bit more self-aware a little bit more self-conscious mm. um you're looking at, I suppose, the enormity of of the sporting side of things being taken away from me started to hit a little bit more. Mm. Um, I was actually back with my, with, when I had my knee, I was back playing football, like in the schoolyard and a little bit with rap more doing bits and pieces. Right. Um, I was back running, I was back cycling. So I was like, I was doing well. Yeah. Um, but then, unfortunately, then about a year down the line, just as I was about to start secondary school in Rathmore, the secondary school in Rathmore, um, that summer, towards the end of that summer, um, I went for a cycle with friends. So now you can imagine how oh, things are just starting to kind of get back to normal. And mm. so I went for a cycle with friends and um, it was maybe five or six miles, which, you know, for that age, like it's a fairly yeah. decent cycle. And um, I started when I returned anyway, for a number of, of nights afterwards, I started to suffer pain. I was waking up at nighttime with pain, with night pain, which can be a symptom of the type of cancer that I had. Mm. So alarm bells started to ring again. And right. um, I suppose we feared the worst really um, because it's something that can happen. It can, it can, you know, it can come back recur. Yeah. So um, we decided again through the GP and through um, consulting with Crumlin and Kappa that I needed to go back and have an x-ray. So right. back up to Dublin again. And um, we had an x-ray and initially the reports were quite good. They said, look, it looks all right. Um, they said, your bones are extremely dense and you're going to be quite tall, which is like I'm about 6'3", I suppose. That that kind of added up for us. Um, but then a couple of days later, they got back to us and they said, look, there's actually two tumours in the knee. Yeah. So there was, um, I had, uh, you know, two tumors in around the knee and what actually happened was they were really deeply rooted within the bone. So that's why they referred to the bone density and how that the it bones looked, are quite, yeah. Okay. So the good, I suppose the positive out of that was, if you can take a positive was that they mm-hmm. caught it really early. It hadn't really emerged from the bone. Right. But like it was just, you can imagine now mm-hmm. after going through all that the first time, 
and then you're just kind of just about getting your life back together and i suppose for my parents as well you know yeah. things were just getting back to normal and um beginning to be positive and look forward again mm. and um the carpet is kind of pulled out from underneath you once more and it was mm. you know it was, it was devastating mm. yeah really really difficult mm. yeah yeah it sounds sounds really tough yeah at you know at that point yeah you can only imagine i suppose uh she said getting it back together and then yeah this happening mm-hmm. um what did it do for your own kind of mental state at that point i suppose it's probably something that sticks obviously mm. makes you almost afraid of the future from the point of view of thinking is there always going to be another mm. reoccurrence you know if it happens it does like i mean i suppose what happened was we we had to try and pick ourselves up basically and um i'm very lucky i suppose i suppose true true i suppose my life experiences i've learned to become very resilient and even at that age i was resilient and you know mm. after the initial upset and conversations with doctors and um you know you've no choice you just pick yourself back up and you say right mm. jesus look we'll have to we'll have to meet this head on again mm. and um so like, did you do that yourself or how was it you know your your parents bringing you around was there other it's a bit of everything but like everyone coming in i have to say like i think part of it is um even at that age i was very mindful of my family and others around me and i felt i felt no i was never told it wasn't okay to be you know i was obviously down in the dumps and so mm. were they but i felt I needed to be strong for them as well, if that makes sense, because they were devastated and they obviously needed to be strong for me. But Mm. I suppose I kind of led from the front. And after a little while, I said, right, look, you know, we're going to have to take this on again. And they, my parents were the same and they were, they were encouraging Mm. me, obviously, as were the doctors and my sisters. Um, You know, like I'll never forget my, my sisters when I got, um, you know, when my two older sisters, Emer and Michelle, and I have a younger sister, Sinead, um, but they were immense as well. Yeah. Uh, now, Sinead was very young at the time, but my sisters were in secondary school and I'll never forget, like, they were offering to, like, they were in leaving cert year and they said, look, mm. we'll forget it. Like, we'll repeat, we'll repeat yeah, the yeah. leaving and we'll help you out. And like, I'll just, yeah, yeah. you know, they, they spent days in, in Crumlin with me as well when mm. I was sick and, and getting sick and, you know, so like the support, I suppose, has brought us so close together and yeah. friends would often comment on They'd be kind of joking with how close we are as a family, but I think when you go through adversity like that, it it can do two things. But for us, it pulled us closer together. Mm. But look, we just we picked it up again, and um, you had to battle on. And I had um, I had more chemo uh, initially, right. but this time there was no conversation about options. This was amputation again. So right. I had that. That is in as in you didn't have an option. Or didn't you have just, an option. Okay. No, okay. like the knee was. I I'd had my baloney amputation for the ankle. No, I had two tumors in the knee. There was no real salvaging there. It was too, not advanced, but where they were, there was nothing like, you're, mm. you're lucky trying to remove bone and like it was just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and to be honest, losing your knee. So I, I did go on then. I had I had um, more chemotherapy and then I had um, a second amputation then in uh, November of, what would that have been? 96, maybe. Hmm. 90, yeah, 96, I think. Um and yeah, so like then th- with the knee going, then you, you lose a huge amount of mobility because when you have your knee, that's such an important joint. And like mm. losing the knee was a huge, a huge blow as well, obviously. But yeah. 
that was it. You're just kind of plunged into like the reality of all this again, and mm. the same thing. I think it was worse in or many worse, ways. It was worse the second so time. I was going to say, did the first time in any way make it easier the second time? But no, no, because no. you know what's coming and you know how bad it is, how yeah, bad it's going to be. Like I remember with the amputation, you know how sore it's going to be. The pain afterwards. I remember getting drains removed which was horrific and I just knew how bad that was be from the first time around. Mm. Um, the chemotherapy the second time, the first time I was ill, but the second time it really knocked me for six. Mm. I think because they, the fact that I had that, that the cancer returned for me, they gave me like, there was a new protocol, a new kind of a drug out around that time. Mm. And um, they really blitzed me. They gave me adult doses as well. Right. And they really went to blitz it, but like it just knocked me for six. So like while the first time I was in and out of hospital mm. sporadically in between sessions because of my immune system, the second time it was literally I spent most of that India. year or so, whatever, in hospital, either with on chemo or fighting infection. Right. Um, so I suppose then going on from that, um, slowly but surely, then I did start to improve. Um, you know, my chemo finished. I had my new prosthesis, which was of obviously I'm a, I'm I had a, I'm an above knee amputee now, um, so I got my prosthesis. Um, slowly reintegrating yourself into society, and that's the way I'd put it because, yeah. you know, I didn't just lose a limb; I lost like a huge part of my identity and right. who I was, and especially mm. from a sporting side of things. And you kind of have to, even at a young age, you kind of have to take a step back and say, Jesus, like, where where do I go from here? Yeah. You know, what do I do? Mm. Um, you know, I couldn't play sport. I, I used to do bits and pieces, but not in a meaningful way. And like, I'd be quite competitive by nature. And, mm. you know, mm. that just, when I couldn't take part in a meaningful way, I suppose I kind of pulled back a good bit, mm. um, which uh, was, it was difficult. So the identity you mentioned is, you know, at, at that age even to have a clear sense of what your identity was you know mm. obviously wasn't probably even fully formed there but like from a, an impact perspective did it affect your you know your mood did you like was there a i guess was there an ongoing kind of low point that was coming or was that happened later or did you you know no, like, did, it make you, <clears throat> did it like i'd imagine to make you angry with the world or were you fucking pissed off with things or what you know what way did you kind of react to that I like I honestly wasn't and I remember um I honestly wasn't and I don't like looking back now I don't know probably why I wasn't but mm. I think I was accepting of it and like part of it as well though was I was actually I had seen so many people <clears throat> like there were a few people I was very friendly with um with the same illness in the ward right and like they didn't make it you know right. <clears throat> and right. they passed away and um right. and like so in a way like while I had been through all this and it was mm. so difficult, in another way, like, I was like, I am so lucky to mm. just be here. Mm. And that actually got me through for a long time. Mm. I was like, you know what? I've I've had an amputation. I've had a second amputation. I've lost a leg, but I'm here and yeah. I live to tell the tale. And like, that actually gets you through for a long time. Mm. And it's probably after that then where... <clears throat> I didn't really go through a dark time or a, a difficult time, I suppose, per se. I suppose there were little, little things along the way, stumbling blocks where I realized, mm. you know, this is going to be a challenge or mm. this is going to be harder than I thought. Mm. Um, I like give simple things like I was in secondary school, you know, you're on, I had chemo, then I was in steroids to help build me up, put on weight. You kind of think you're there. I'm, I'm an amputee. 
prosthetic leg, you know, you're even limp. You're like, Jesus, will will I ever have a girlfriend? Will you know, will I be able to do normal things that my friends are doing? Mm. Will I be able to go to college? You know, like all very, I suppose, real questions that I didn't have answers to at the time. Mm. But with the support of my secondary school in Rathmore, uh, with the support of my friends, um, like my friends and my family, I think one thing I'd have to say about my friends was um, they were just exceptional and they they, were t- they used to take the piss, but in a very good way. Like yeah. they never treated me any differently yeah. and they didn't make any special allowances. Mm. I'm thinking of a few guys in particular who I won't name, but they just really got me through because... Mm. Uh, I soon realized, look, they're not treating me any differently. So do you know what? I'm not going to behave any differently. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and I was, I, it is vital. Mm. And I was very positive. Like I had a very positive outlook from the outset. And that was something that was inherent in me. And I was resilient and I, I was able to kind of bounce back. And um, I think resilience is extremely important as well um, in life. And, you know, I, I was doing a talk last night, actually, um, just around kind of mental health and well-being. Yeah. And I touched on it in the talk a little bit. And, you know, sometimes people see resilience as, as being something where you have to bounce back from a big, a big uh, dramatic event in your life. But, you know, you can have micro resilience and mm-hmm. you can just practice bouncing back from little things like, mm-hmm. you know, an argument with a friend or a, war, a situation in work that doesn't go the way you'd like it. And yeah. just you can build all these things up. So that's something that I'm quite interested in. Yeah. But I was just resilient from the outset and... um I was able to kind of bounce back and slowly but surely with the help of my family as well. And like, I, I can't thank them enough, like my parents, John and Anne and my sisters, um, Emer, Michelle and Sinead, um, and my community, Rathmore, like the GAA mm. club, you know, the secondary school with a fantastic uh, principal down there, Gerald Donahue, who was ahead of his time really. And um, all these little, what seemed like small ingredients at the time, just when put together, just created an opportunity for a very positive outcome for me mm. and um i suppose i went on then i completed secondary school um were you aware of some of those things kind of forming in you at the time though you know i think for me in the last few years it's only when i started to kind of fully understand my core values resilience mm. actually is one of them and mm-hmm. i consider that one of the strongest things like, kind of tied to hard work but i didn't know what what they were at the time but did you just know oh I, I seem to have this bounce back ability you just weren't you know you weren't probably looking too deeply aware of it. and just going yeah forward? I think that I I probably wasn't aware of it like one thing that one thing I suppose one thing that was would have been said to me a lot was that I was very positive even in the hospital they mm. just felt I was very positive mm. and like even when when I was sick the second time mm. they just couldn't get over how well I handled it in some ways. And I just had that. I was just positive. I suppose I could appreciate the enormity of my situation, but equally I felt I still had a lot to fight for and I had a lot to live for. And, you know, and like, to be honest, when you're, when you have a serious illness like cancer, um, and it's not the same for everyone, but I do think like your attitude Mm. is very important. And when you're faced with adversity, like Mm. you really have a decision to make and your next move yeah. is going to define you like and i i decided very early on that while i had a disability and um and i appreciated early days that it was going to challenge me like i decided as well i said well i am going to challenge it as well and i i was not going to mm. you know 
in some ways listen to other people in terms of people people with the best will in the world want to put limitations on you or things in order to protect you I suppose and don't want mm. you to do certain things but I decided I'm going to live a full life mm. and I'm going to do what I want to do um, and I'm not going to let mm. not going to be defined by my disability essentially mm-hmm. and I mean I'm using the word disability and again this is something I mentioned last night in my talk I'm just I'm not comfortable with the term disability and I think if you put, if you think about the word disability, just the prefix dis, it just, it suggests that there's a lack of ability there. Mm -hmm. And um, I think people with so-called disabilities, if we look at society, um, people, you know, like myself or like I consider myself very lucky, you know, I can get up and I can walk around and I can see the world and I can hear the world and I can interact. And Mm -hmm. I've been very, like, I've been extremely lucky with the remainder of my life. Yeah. With that, I'm very happily married i met Anne-Marie and she's been just amazing um you know she's just been a, a huge um plus in my life and you know i've just been extremely fortunate with what i've done thereafter mm. but in terms of um you know people who have a so-called disability i think they're the most able you know they're so innovative you know mm. because we have to adapt like we walk out the door in the morning and, you know, we have to do things a little bit differently. So mm. so-called people, so-called disabled people are actually the most enabled people in our society. Mm. Um, you know, for me, I feel like I've been enabled to to be adaptable and to be resourceful and to be resilient. And mm. like I lost a leg and I lost a limb, but I've gained like so much more. Mm. And, you know, I, I was saying this again in my talk last night and if I had the option now of somebody said, right, David, look, we'll rewind and I'll give you back your yeah, leg and we'll start again. Ask, yeah. I wouldn't take it. Yeah. And that's the that's the God's honest truth. Mm. I can put my hand on my heart because it has made me who I am and it has made me the person that I am. Mm-hmm. And um, it has brought me down a completely different path. I probably wouldn't have gone into teaching. Right. Um, the fact that I was surrounded by young people and obviously I was a child myself, I could just identify with the resilience and the resourcefulness of the children around me and mm. how they were dealing with this enormous, enormously difficult situation. Mm. And um, so you think I was, as a result of the cancer that, that kind of pointed you on the path towards yeah. teaching and something that would never have been in your radar otherwise? Yeah. I, and I didn't like I wasn't I that wasn't something I was aware of at the time. Yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. you know what? I want to be a teacher. Um, in fact, I spent most of my time. There was a teacher in the hospital. Mm. <laughs> I spent most of my time avoiding her. I was I used to pretend when she was coming around to give me work, I used to pretend to be asleep. Mm. Uh, so it wasn't like I had a Grawford at that stage, but it was just later in life yeah. when I just I, I looked back, I suppose. And you kind of touched on it earlier. I wasn't overtly aware of it at the time, but. These kind of things build up over time. You become yeah. aware of them later in life, yeah, and uh, yeah. so that that was that formed the basis of my decision to enter teaching, mm. uh, the teaching profession. I went to UCC for three years um, after secondary school, and I studied um, history and Irish there, mm. and then I subsequently went on to Mary I in Limerick to do the eighteen month course, post grad course, to become mm. a primary school teacher, and um, but and I'm currently working in Rochestone Educate Together National School, which is um, a fantastic school, and I'm extremely happy there. Um, you feel like you're another thing kind of sometimes talk about this is is purpose and having your sense of purpose massively impactful on your your happiness and well-being you feel like you are where you're meant to be yeah i feel like i am where i'm meant to be i feel that um even what's emerged uh lately and i was saying to you offline rob is just lately i've kind of fallen into 
a little bit of motivation in speaking and it's as much by accident as design. I was mm. asked to do a talk in my local secondary school and um, I was asked to do it uh, two years ago and I couldn't do it. And then uh, this year I went and did it and um, I just enjoy that hugely and just... Mm. And I'm not doing it for any kind of personal gain. I just feel that I remember when I was going through my illness, if I was able, if I could see somebody, I suppose, and I met one or two that had kind of been through um, the chemo and amputations and I could see that they were leading a full and normal life. Mm. And it just resonated hugely with me. And I felt, I feel now if I can give something back um, to those, to to the people that I talked to, I suppose, mm. like that, if I can help one or two people in the room, that's that's a huge bonus for me. And even last night I did um a talk down in um Glenflesk, which is a neighbouring parish, um uh to with the GA club there and the, the focus was around kind of mental health and well being and mm. I suppose building resilience resilience and it was about, I suppose, uh, young people and um you know, while young people have huge ability and huge potential, I think it's a very difficult time to be a young person. Mm. You know, because there's so many external kind of pressures out there now in terms of you know trying to i suppose be the best sports person or do well in school and then you've the whole social media aspect of things which you know it's it's driving young people to feel that they have to look a certain way or behave a certain way and mm. i think there's a lot of pressures there so that was kind of the focus of last night but mm. i'm really enjoying this um motiv- motivational speaking side of things and that's something i want to get into more mm. but um it's not the path I probably thought I'd go down initially in yeah. terms of when I was younger, I was hoping, look, I might go on, maybe play with Kerry and do all these things. And mm. But this is the road that was meant for me, I suppose, and I'm extremely comfortable with it and I'm, you know, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. So I guess as a teacher, you mentioned the social media challenges, mm. you probably see that firsthand mm. in there. Mm. Um, some of the messages in, this, in, the, in the talk that you kind of give out, what are what would the key kind of few things be that you would kind of look to impart upon mm. the, the, those that that attend? I suppose like one of my messages last night was I think we have to start a conversation around um, around technology and devices. Full stop. Um, it wasn't my story. It was one of the guys who was hosting the night uh, last night. He plays in a band, and um, he was telling a story about a couple. He was playing a gig the other night, a two-hour gig. And he was telling a story about a couple who sat for the duration of the two hours of the gig um, on their phones, not conversing, mm. not talking, not interacting. And then uh, towards the end of the gig, uh, you know, they kind of gave each other a nudge and sat up and, and took the selfie and uh, with big happy faces. Tick and no tick ex- Absolutely. And no doubt that was shared somewhere. And it's insinuating, oh, here, here in Killarney, having a fantastic yeah, night. Yeah, yeah. And you have people at home then with the, maybe minding the children or with the sitting up by the fire saying, Jesus, where am I going wrong? Yeah. Um, I just think it's like, and we're all, I'm guilty of it myself. And like, um, it's just a conversation I think we need to have because I don't think we're communicating appropriately. And I think with young people, that might be at the root maybe of what's going on in terms of some of the mental health issues because we're a society now where we're, you know, I suppose we communicate with thumbs up and with smiley faces and emojis and mm-hmm. that can mask an awful lot. And we're communicating with symbols and pictures. It's going as back a, to like ancient times of hieroglyphics. Where absolutely. We're not yeah. Using words, yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So like, I suppose I, I, one of my messages last night was to try to put down the phone more and try to invest in your relationships and your friendships. 
because like for me I realized that you know when the proverbial hits the fan and when things go pear-shaped you know you're going to have to have something in the bank and you're going to have to go back to those people that you're close to um Mm -hmm. and those friendships and those relationships and try and make a withdrawal from those so to speak Mm -hmm. to help you out in your time of need Mm -hmm. and I just think we need to communicate a little better um you know and I just think as well with the likes of Instagram and those you know I just think young people are looking at these and think, Jesus, I have to be in the gym or I have to be doing X, Y, and Z or I have to look a certain way. Mm. Uh, I just think there's huge pressures out there. So that, I suppose that was, to answer your question, that was kind of what I was trying to touch on last night. Mm. And um, I think it resonated. I think it resonates with people when you say it, but, and like, I'd I'd be guilty of it myself in a sense. Um, Now I'm becoming more aware of, Mm. of my use of technology and, I think we just, I just think it's a conversation we need to have as a mm. society. We need to look at things and um, but see if we can say, make yeah, a change. A lot of the times there's these talks and people, it's impacting them on the night. But what is the the action plan that you have to put in place afterwards to make a change? Because, you know, you need to do something on an ongoing basis to, to change the habit. Absolutely. Um, so it's almost, you know, maybe there's potential there to put a program together of what needs to be done yeah after the talk and is there you know it's ironic in a way is there like a website that you send people to <laughs> yeah, to yeah. check in to say i'm yeah. actually doing not yeah. checking instagram every day or, or whatever yeah. you know so yeah. you're almost leveraging technology to turn people away from it but yeah. um it's like anything when you're you're trying to make a change in somebody they sometimes leave the room after a, a, a coaching conversation whatever feeling great because they had been inspired or they had the chance to talk for an hour and get stuff out of their head, but then it's nothing actually happens thereafter, you know. I totally agree. Yeah. To be taken on, like. And even like, even though last night was centered around mental health and well-being, um, and we mentioned a bit earlier on again off air that not that it's becoming a buzzword, but like it's not good enough to just mention it and to say, look, you have to, if there's something going on, you're not feeling okay, you have to open up. Mm. You actually have to give people the steps that they can take yeah, and, and something tangible that they can work towards to actually you know alleviate their problems if they do have a problem Mm. um you know i think that's that's extremely important and you know i think you make a good point as well with the technology um it's just i i just think for the moment for me last night i suppose my motivation was just to get people thinking about it maybe and Mm. just thinking about how they use it how they use their technology and Mm. what way things are going um but down the line yeah i think we need to maybe put something in place or Mm. maybe somebody will yeah, no, no, it's definitely mm. fair play to be doing it and keep Proof doing things. it. Yeah. Um, so going back to the story a little bit further, this uh, was the the Irish international team yeah. is something I'd like to to dig into. So, as you said, dream of sport mm. up, up till eleven, thrown off course a little bit. Mm-hmm. What was the the sporting chase thereafter, and how did you know? Did you try other sports out, or did yeah. you get you know? So I suppose, like you know. I think I alluded to earlier on that I I I was taking part like I'm saying P I was standing in goal or like I was I couldn't run I could no longer run with the, with the prosthesis that I had being above knee amputee when I had my knee mm. you can run okay. if you're below knee you can run fairly well so look I suppose I couldn't take part in sport in a meaningful way I was I'm a competitive by nature so I probably pulled back a little bit now as I got a bit older then when I left secondary school 
um, I started going to the gym a bit more uh, in college and that was something that I really enjoyed and I started to get a bit fitter, mm. um, lost a bit of weight, you know, that helps to build the self-confidence a little bit, I think. Then I started mm. doing a little bit of hill walking, um, just, you know, with my prosthesis. Uh, then I got into cycling in a big way. Right. Um, I started cycling. But I suppose I missed the pull of the team sport and just like, I suppose that was inherent in me that I had played, you know, football, Gaelic football and that my dad was a footballer and I just missed that. And like I said, you know, I'd love to be able to replace that in some way. So then um, I was on an internet search one evening and um, I discovered Amputee Football, which Mm -hmm. is, it's a game played on crutches. So you take off your prosthetic leg and right. you you use a pair of crutches to get around the pitch. Mm. Um, you can't use your residual limb at all to control or to touch the ball because some people might have a longer stump than others. So some people might have an amputation where it's just from their ankle down and so on. So mm. if you have a longer stump or whatever, essentially that could be seen as, as an advantage. Okay. But anyway, to get to the crux of it, when I found this sport, I was like, Jesus, like there's never... I didn't think there was anything like that in Ireland and mm. I googled it and there actually there had just been something set up in Ireland okay. a, a fantastic guy by the name of Simon Baker who um, he's done a huge amount for Irish amputee football he's the founder of it in Ireland him he's a Limerick man an English man originally but um, a Limerick man now himself and a guy by the name of Christy McElligot who he he played for St. Pat's um, at junior or sorry at League of Ireland level and he is junior uh, he played at junior international level as well right. he was actually recently on Operation Transformation okay. I don't know if you he's the amputee guy in that right. so they set up Irish amputee football I think in 2011 and um, I kind of I just I rang Christy Christy's number was there I rang Christy I was living in Galway at the time right. and I said look what's the story with this and he said you know we started this up we're looking for players come along and have a look so it was mm. on in, in Mountview in Dublin and I went along to a session and I just instantly fell in love with it right. it was like on the crutches uh, very physical you know um, very similar to regular football um, the rules are uh, it's seven aside. side right. um, there's no offside um, you know, we because we're on crutches, our hands are on the crutches, so you don't throw and the ball goes out over the line, it's not a throw and we kick it in. Right. Um pretty much apart from that, it's played on a smaller pitch as well. Pretty and much after that. Tackling all is all the same. Crutches aren't allowed. You can't use your crutch to control the ball or to advance mm. the ball. Um it's tough, like it's really tough. Flying uh, in, and flying in, yeah. Off, like off the crutches, you go. Completely. Well, you get, you can if <laughs> yeah. you get away with it. <laughs> but uh, no, like it's it's very attritional. Like it's it's really really okay. really tough. So I just fell in love with it, um, and then my, I suppose if I get involved in something, I'll give it a hundred percent. So I just really stuck with it, and over the past number of years. I've been fortunate enough to represent Ireland um, on numerous occasions. We went to the Amputee World Cup in Mexico in 2014. Oh, that was oh. our first big tournament. No, it didn't go that well for us. Right. Um, was the standard really high? Like, standard is crazy. Right. Standard is crazy. Like there's... Um, Are Brazil brilliant at it as well? They're or? not. Well, they're yeah. good. We right. we actually played Brazil in the World Cup. They beat us 2-0. That was our very first game of the World Cup. Um, traditionally, they have been very strong. It's other countries. It's actually... Mm. Uzbekistan were the world champions a number of years ago. Right. Uh, Russia are the current world champions. Mm. Sometimes it's war-torn countries or countries that have a high level of, of amputees mm. uh, do very well in it. Yeah, yeah. Turkey are very strong. Turkey are hosting the European Championships now in October. Right. Um, Great Britain are very strong. 
uh, the standard is crazy and like that was you know we went out there we we did a whole year of of training we went out there um we were very well prepared but at the same time we were naive in terms of you know we didn't appreciate what the standard would be like right. and you need to go to a tournament like that and experience it before you're really at the races so yeah. i suppose um what we're doing now is we're building towards um the european championships in october in turkey um we're very lucky that we're linked in with the um football for all for all program with the fai okay. so there's a guy there by the name of Oshin jordan who is who's giving us huge support um and they give us financial assistance and everything else um so that's kind of it we we train then at the university of limerick uh, monthly and in between then like i'd be on we're on our own individual program so when I leave here now, I'm going to the gym. Like I've, I'm training at the moment for four or five days a week, mm. and that'll like either intensify then or drop off a little bit coming up to tournaments. Um, so we're kind of given an individual program in between. So the the program then what we have to focus on is it's crutch work. So like I would do, I do five k runs on crutches. Oh. I climbed the Pat Mountains down in Kerry mm. Easter Saturday, yeah, yeah. on crutches gas i came up the brow of the hill um and there was a couple i suppose kind of celebrating that they climbed the paps and they were sitting down having their sandwiches mm, <laughs> and i came over the brow of the hill on a on a pair of crutches and they nearly i'd say they nearly choked on their sandwiches but it's gas i kind of get a kick as well out of you know just i suppose showing people what yeah. a so-called disabled person is capable of mm. um and pushing boundaries i suppose and challenging people's perceptions on disability and what it is yeah so that's something that that i enjoy as well so getting back to the football, you have to build up that, I suppose, endurance on the crutches. Mm. Then it's things like ball work, uh, strength and conditioning, mm. uh, the way we kick the ball. You know, if you picture the way you might kick a ball, you're putting a lot of weight through your standing leg mm. and you're kicking with your other leg. With us, we're putting our weight through the crutches. Mm. So your core is very important because you're not really kicking. You are kicking, obviously, with your leg, but you're swinging your whole body through. Mm. So your core muscles are extremely important. So we have to do a lot of strength and conditioning there. And upper body strength is very important. Um, and it's just it's it's just been it's just been incredible for me. Um, I noticed in the little bit of time I had to research because we only connected yeah. a couple of days. You have a, a video online that kind of went a little bit viral, did it? Of, of you uh, scoring or doing a, a kick? The crossbar challenge one, Was yeah. it? Was it a crossbar challenge? Was it, or were you doing There's a couple. kick, I think. I don't know. I saw one. Yeah. yeah. There's a couple. Well, a couple of them, all right. Um, there was one where, yeah, it's a crossbar challenge one and it was Tommy Bo had a competition okay. and uh, I entered it. Right. And I, I won it, which oh, is great. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So it was nice. Very and good. in fairness, he's been he's been supportive as well. He he kind of tweets and retweets stuff for us, and like yeah. that's a huge part of our challenge as well. Is and the reason I do things like that and we do things like that, it's to raise our profile because mm. believe it or not, like we've we're, we 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 find it hard to get players, and like we're amazed. Like we had a documentary as well that was on RT television. You know, we've been on the six one news. We've done lots of stuff, but we're we're still finding it very hard to find players and to raise our profile. Mm. So, like, if there's anyone listening that knows an amputee yeah. or that might want to get involved, you know, please look. We've we've a very active website. It's Irish Amputee Football Association dot com. We're very mm. active on Facebook. Again, it's Irish Amputee Football Association. Yeah. We have a Twitter account. Um, so please just get in touch, and even if you want to get involved on some level, be it. Um, you know, we're looking for physios, we're looking for people to help us fundraise. Mm. Um, because while we do get help from the FAI, it doesn't cover all of our expenses. So mm. we find we have to go out and do a lot of fundraising ourselves to help raise funds. Mm. Um, 
And it does cost a lot because I suppose we have monthly sessions, as I said earlier, at University of Limerick. That involves the whole squad staying over over the course of a weekend. So you have accommodation costs, you have the mm-hmm. cost of the facilities. So look, if people want to get involved, um, it would be great if they could get in touch and we'll, we'd be glad to, to have them on board. And I, I suppose the one, what would be the one takeaway you would get from being involved in the Irish amputee team? Is it is it that feeling of being back in a in a team environment mm. that you that was the first time you were back in that probably was it? Yeah, it's like it's 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 just been it's just been amazing. It's like I've kind of come full circle. Like in my head, in my head, I was always an athlete. If that makes sense. Well, so so was I. <laughs> Still, um, but like I'm gonna uh, play professional football one day. Still, I believe, like yeah, yeah. But like I've just come full circle where I can I can now actually take part in a sport in a very meaningful way. And like yeah. I suppose what I like as well is you know when I used to kind of stand in or stand in goal or play a little bit in school, you know it's because you're an amputee. You know anything you do is is oh it's fantastic fair play to you. But now like hmm. I'm involved with guys who are better than me and I'm trying to push myself. And you know you're playing at your own level. And hmm. um, so I suppose it is. It, it gives you that kind of self confidence as well. And like I just enjoy the fact that I train regularly and I'm I have to eat well and yeah. like I'm doing all the things I would have wanted to do for years but yeah. I just wasn't able to. Yeah. Um and amputee football it's just just it's just been amazing. Um I suppose it's it's gas as well. It's uh it's um it's it's one of those sports where you know it's it's growing all the time. Um but it's Again, as I said, we're just we're trying to we're trying to build the profile of it, hmm. um, which which isn't easy. So that's something that we're we're really working on at present. And the likes of Christy, our, our manager, um, he was an operation transformation, which helped raise our profile a little bit. And he subsequently he's since he's lost the weight, he's he's come back and he's playing now as well, which okay. is great. And we have a new manager in place, Declan Considine from Limerick. Okay. So um, that's fantastic. It's also probably the only sport in the world where you can go halves in a pair of football boots. <laughs> so, Jesus, that's, a, that's another added value. There, I'm telling actually. you, these these difficult times. Yeah. So it's great. Yeah. No, I'm really enjoying it. Cool. Yeah. Excellent. The next normal stage, I suppose, is kind of I go through a number of rapid fire questions just to you know see where it kind of talks about your general day to day stuff and yeah. maybe one of the questions that I wouldn't normally ask, but you know, what are the obstacles you face on a day to day basis that you think more could be done for? Mm. That that you could that not like obviously you've overcome all these obstacles and you don't see it a you see it mm. enabling as opposed to disabling maybe not every disabled person sees yeah. that what are the the challenges that are, that I wouldn't see on a day to day basis that you face um like I think I I'm just so used to, like I'm longer now without my leg or mm. being an empty than I was being or with my with yeah. my leg so to speak I suppose yeah I suppose I do forget like I think you know I was watching a program the other night all right where for wheelchair users and there was people did uh, a kind of a study where they were trying to get from A to B and things like wheelie bins out in their ways and mm. the way bus stops are, are situated and mm. you know having to come off paths and so on for me um, you know I'm very lucky in that I can get around fairly easily yeah. like I'm I'm fit and active but I mean there are certainly challenges for for other people um for other I suppose so-called disabled people um I just think that sometimes I think some of the things we do or we talk about in terms of people with disabilities are fairly tokenistic you know I think we need to start doing things to help people in a meaningful way um and I, I know that's a very broad statement, but just um, just ways that we can actually really help people out 
in a meaningful way, be it like physical obstacles or like it's it's difficult even as an amputee, like we have I might be there might be I might be wrong in saying this, but a number of years ago now there was no actual official database where there was numbers of how many amputees are actually do actually exist in Ireland. There was right. a study done on this. Like we're not a very we're not a sector that's very well looked after. Mm. Like and it would it would even contrast with we'll say things like diabetes and other there would be numbers and there would be figures in place if mm. you, you could find out how many diabetics there are in Ireland, for example. Mm-hmm. Whereas amputees, um I don't think that's I don't think we're incredibly well looked after. Like I would find as well personally like the prosthetic that I'm wearing at the moment, um, all in is probably the bones of 10,000 euro. Um, like I'd have guys, like I have to pay for medical insurance to cover that cost. Um, Mm. you'd have guys in the team who don't work and now some of them may have medical cards, but, um, there's a huge challenge, financial challenge there as well Mm. for us, you know? Mm. Um, and then we see the guys in England then who are playing in England on the GB team and they have like, the top end prosthetics, uh, like legs that cost, you know, maybe fifty, sixty thousand, and they're getting it through the NHS. Mm. So I mean, that's personally like that's probably a challenge in terms of um, just getting finance for for these things. Mm. Um, and you know, we see it all the time. Where, you know, we recently took part in a charity match in uh, Limerick, uh, not for ourselves, but for a little boy down there who. Mm needed a wheelchair and you know um i just think we need to start looking after people in our society a little bit better because we're already challenged you know and uh just by putting things in place it just would make our lives a little bit easier mm. you know yeah no that's that's fair and it's maybe something you know mm. through the motivational speaking as well you can <coughs> maybe yeah yeah even, even more maybe during the years who would have been who would you look at as you know your major influences obviously i'm sure as you said your family have been mm. really there for you is there any other uh people that stick out that have helped you when you've faced challenges mm. or obstacles um i suppose like yeah as you said my family were were just immense and like my my friends um were outstanding as well i mean it it goes on and i've encountered people throughout my life that have helped me in so many ways. Like it was, it was kind of funny in a way when, when I was in Rathmore, I suppose. And when I was down at home, um, you were kind of known as like, I call it the boy who was sick, you know, and people mean very well, but you know, it's nice to move on from that as well. Mm. And I find that then when I went to college and I went, when I went to Galway to work there in Dublin and subsequently Cork, it is, and you have ownership over whether you impart your story or not, yeah, if yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah. So like you have the space to kind of live your own life and be someone else and mm. something else as opposed to having that. And it's not a negative connotation, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it just allows you that space to move on and be, mm. be someone else. Um, I suppose in terms of influences, um, Growing up, um, a lot of the Kerry players, like I would have looked up to Seamus Moynan, who I was lucky enough to meet last night, uh, Morris Fitzgerald, uh, those guys in terms of soccer then, I suppose Roy Keane, I'd be a big fan of Roy's and uh, we were fortunate enough to meet him as well with the amputee team um, mm. just prior to our trip over to Mexico for the World Cup and he was an absolute gentleman and, you know, I know Roy can get the press sometimes, um, have a go with him, but for us, he left a press conference um in his capacity as the Ireland assistant manager and came in and chatted to us and he was just so giving of his time Mm. and such a nice guy and Mm. hilarious as well and just gave us a few little nuggets of wisdom to to take with us to the World Cup. Mm. Um, So I suppose it was great to meet him. Um, And 
I suppose people like that have inspired me and motivated me along the along the way. But it's funny, look, I get inspiration from different people at different times. Like the other day I was out training on the soccer pitch and I was doing interval training, which was very tough and it's on the crutches. So I'm trying to hit kind of from the one end of the pitch to the halfway line is what I was doing. And I was trying to do as many as I could and just take a short break in between. Mm. So it's funny, a guy came down, a guy, I'd say he must have been in his 60s or 70s and he was actually running on the pitch as well. Right. So I was thinking it was hilarious. I was looking at him and I was saying, well, Jesus, if he can do it, I can yeah. do it. And he was certainly saying, well, if that guy over there with one leg can, can keep going, I can keep going. Like, so yeah, it's just yeah. funny. I take motivation from different people at different stages and at different times, yeah. um, which is nice, you know? Yeah, that's, an, that's just an interesting one that sticks yeah. out like when, when you think of that. You talked about resilience yeah. as a kind of a value, a core value. What other ones would have developed over the years, do you think, that you would hang your hat on. I normally talk about five or six that you can really yeah. hone in on. I suppose like resilience is definitely one, just that ability to bounce back. And it doesn't have to be bouncing back from a huge life, traumatic life event. It can be just, you can start off small and just, you can, I was actually reading an article yesterday ahead of my talk about resilience mm. and there was 10 or 12 steps, which I, I can't remember off the top of my head just to help build resilience. Mm. Uh, that would be one. Adaptability is another one. Like, mm. you know, some of my greatest achievements in life have been, have arisen from situations where I've been told you can't do that or you shouldn't do that. Mm. Like I've, I've, I was in New Zealand. I bungee jumped off a bridge there. I did a skydive in Australia. Mm. I took part in the great Limerick run, um, in the marathon as part of a four man relay team, which meant covering 10 kilometers on crutches each, mm. uh, in, in a good time as well. Thankfully I've done, I did a 15k hike from Glendalough to Limelore on my crutches. Right. Yeah, I've done all these things and it's just about adapting and it's mm. just about doing things differently. And I think it's very important that we set our own boundaries and our own parameters on what we can do. Like the only limitations um, that really exist are ones that we set for ourselves. Do you know, we can mm. do anything if we if we have the right attitude. Um, so adaptability, resourcefulness, resilience. Um, I think positivity as well. I think... We're a little bit predisposed to being uh, negative, I think, as a society. Mm. Um, we actually sometimes hone in on the bad news stories and it's, you know, I just think we need to just be more positive, open up and look at look at the positive in life. Like mm. I become an expert at reframing things where, mm. you know, I, something happens or a situation happens or something doesn't go my way and I try to flip it on its head and mm. use it. Like even in sporting sense, like I go through stages where, I'm not playing as well as I like, or you mm. mightn't get picked for a game or you mightn't start a game. And um, I use that then as motivation or I reframe it or I flip it over and I look at it in a different way and try to turn it into a positive note. And that's that's not easy to mm. do all the time. And I'm not saying I successfully do that all yeah. the time, but I do set out to do that if possible. Do you know? So you mentioned reframing, like that's a, a tool, I guess, yeah. that you can use. Did you do any... Is there any training or any reading or where did you come up with like using that or other types of tools to, to basically um, look on the bright side? And, you know, is it just something that you think is developed? I think it's developed. I think it's inherent to me as well. You know, I know I've look, I've had influences like we've, we, even with our amputee team, we've uh, a high performance coach, um, Alan Heary is his name. And um, he's also a sports psychologist. Uh, mm. And he's, you know, he's done an awful lot of work with us as well. Mm. And, He's talked to us about performance and what to do if a game isn't going well and mm. how you can kind of reset and like even mm. there's little things I'll do during games to help me reset if I make a mistake or if I want to kind of like it could be mm. 
clinking the crutches together. It can be like, you know, some people have a little wristband and they snap their wristband and it's like a reset or they mm. visualize things like yeah. I would use visual visualization before some games. Mm. Um before all my games really you just kind of I would picture the where the position I'm playing in, kind of you're imagining what what way the ball might come, what what may happen, what am I going to do if I make a mistake in the first few minutes? What am I going to do with the first ball I get? What am I going to do to I suppose not put my opponent off, but to try and just help them realize that they're in a game and that they're not going to have an easy day. And like, mm. I just be, I just think about all those things, but there are things I would have picked up along the line yeah. uh, from, I suppose, coaches and from, um, from reading as well. Like I'd read a lot. Um, I'm reading a book called um, Man's Search for Meaning at the moment by Viktor Frankl. I've actually listened to the yeah. audio book it's yeah. about the, when he's in the concentration camp. Yes, yeah, yeah it's I amazing. I listened yeah. to it a couple of weeks ago. It's, uh, it's, it's serious, tough yeah. going. It's like, tough going, but it's, it's very good. Yeah, like he, yeah, yeah. I actually, again, last night, the talk I was doing, I used a quote from him, which I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's basically about the fact that we don't have control over what life can throw at you, but you actually, you do have power and control over how you manage that situation and what you're going to do about it. Mm. And that really resonated with me because like I had no control over the fact that I got seriously ill and I developed bone cancer and I, and I lost my leg. But mm. what I do have control over is how I've managed that situation and how I've tried to flip it on its head and um, yeah. turn it into like a positive and, and make the most of what I have and the hand mm. I've been dealt. So, yeah. That, that book was uh, recommended on one of the, the the episode so far really uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. That's where i heard about it it's and, excellent and, and yeah listen to it my, there, my sister actually she when when i started doing um just a little bit of motivational speaking and stuff she she just handed me that one day and said have a read of this and like i have to say it's it's brilliant yeah other books that you could recommend that would be um, that have helped you in any do you know time? i used to i probably read more of them going back a while um i've stopped my head there's nothing that comes to mind that i can recommend um I take little snippets from here and there. There's stuff in the paper, like the the thing that I was reading yesterday ahead of the the talk. The thing on resilience was something I got, I think, in one of the papers. Mm. I'd keep like clippings and articles like that that might just be useful for mm. myself and for others. You know, um, with yeah. the speaking, and this is just probably going into confidence around getting up there and doing it. You know, I think when you have a really serious, genuine story to tell that, that you obviously have the fear kind of maybe goes away a little bit when you're actually talking from the, mm. the, the pit of your stomach or, or yeah. your heart, I think, as you said earlier, is that true for you or is it maybe being a teacher, you might have that uh, confidence in front of a crowd anyway? Or? I don't know. Like it's, it's very strange because, um, you know, when I talk to my wife now and read about this or my family, they'll kind of say like, I don't know how you do it or whatever. And like, mm. like, I, I suppose in many ways I am a confident person, but in other ways I'm probably not as confident as I'd like to be at the same time. Mm. Um, you know, that's probably the balance. You don't want to be. Yeah. If you thought you were too confident, could absolutely, and it would be a bit of a pain. To do that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. But like, I do find, I suppose, when I like last night, now, you know, um, I was sitting down. There was uh, Breach Corkery was actually there as well, the Cork uh, footballer, footballer and camogie player. Mm-hmm. Um, she was excellent. She spoke before me. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, I'd have a few nerves when I'm sitting there. You're kind of, it's more the anticipation of it. But then I think when I get up, I'm okay because it's it's my story. Like, I can't go too far wrong. And then I tell my story and I also try and get across, 
I suppose, a little bit on mental health and about resilience and about social media, various things. It, it depends on who I'm talking to. But yeah. um, I suppose it just kind of flows. And like, I'm very passionate about like, while it's my story, I'm passionate about without getting too deep and meaningful. I think that part of my purpose in life is um, I think when you've had a close shave, not with I, I, I probably was never close to. I was never really, really close to death, but I mean, mm. I suppose I saw people around me with the same illness dying. Mm. Um, I was down to 30, 35 kg. I was, you know, I was, I suppose it was touch and go at times, but I was never on death's door, so to speak. Yeah. But I think when you've had a brush with, um, with, with death or when you've been through something like that, it, um, I think it, it kind of helps you to, what would I say, just to kind of realize that, you kind of look, I suppose, at, at your life and at you're aware of your own mortality. And um, I think part of my purpose now is to help people. And I, like that was part of my motivation to become a teacher. It's it's all of my motivation in terms of having the chat with yourself today, mm. doing these talks is just to reach out. Like I'm not looking to gain from it in any way. Mm. I just, I always feel, and like it is a bit like it's a bit of a cliche but if i can reach out to one or two people in the room and help them like mm -hmm. you know that's that's a success for me and sometimes you don't know if you've helped somebody or not it's it's not very tangible like you get a bit of feedback at the end of a night if somebody comes up and says i enjoy yeah. that or thanks for that but you know like last night again there was a huge focus on mental health who's to say that there wasn't somebody in that room there probably mm -hmm. was who was going through a really tough time and it just may have helped them a little bit and that's a huge part of my motivation now you know yeah but it's to go on from it like it's you doing it somebody else might get something out of it they might go on and have their own tough story that they want to tell it's, yeah. it's a snowball effect right so yeah. if you don't do it it's less likely to happen exactly you know, similar just putting talking on this show that is about making people better yeah it's kind of just getting it out there and you know and there's no harm if you know studies say there's no absolutely no point being negative about something there's no no good Absolutely. comes out of yeah. it. It's exactly. only good comes out of being positive. So still naturally sometimes default to being negative and mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. it's just it it's absolutely the most stupid thing in the world you know, when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, there's no totally. reason like so. Yeah. But you do get pulled into it and like a person a person said to me last night uh they were saying Jesus, you know, and, and me there worrying about small things. And I said, yeah, but like, I worry about small things too. And mm. like, I mean, it's not like I'm not putting myself out there as this kind oh, of person yeah. who has it all down either. Of you know, like, absolutely, I worry. I sweat the small stuff and I worry about small things. And absolutely, I have times where I get annoyed or I'm, you know, down about something or worried about something. But like, for the most part, I mm. try and bounce back up. And when and, you do, though, and that was one of the questions, you know, like, I've, every day you have a million things mm. that pisses you off or mm -hmm. that comes in is there a flip in your in your head that turns you say like very quickly that you become aware i'm not actually going to worry about that or, or how does it how does it turn um i don't know if it i i probably have to go through it a little bit i kind of process it a little bit and i mm. kind of try and compartmentalize a little bit and i say right look mm. I'm very practical as well. If there's something I can do to solve a problem, I rather get it done there and then and mm. just go go about sorting the... I'm, I'd be a bit like that. I probably yeah, want yeah, to fix yeah. things. Yeah. Maybe I want to fix things a bit too much. Mm. I just try and implement things that will help to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. And then... But I would I would worry. I do, cons I do have concerns yeah. about various things and it's part of my nature. Mm. But I suppose I'm trying to train myself to manage that as well, you know, mm. which I yeah. think is important. And look, I think 
we're in a time as well where people there's a lot of anxiety around when people are very anxious about certain things and like I think it's just important to realise that that's totally normal like yeah. it's totally normal it's not a reflection on, on you or that you're weak or you know I think it's just important that we we talk about these things and open up mm. and like even within my own circle of friends I suppose whereas years ago there was an emphasis in going out and having a few drinks mm. and having the crack no. I tend to go for coffee with my male friends though. Yeah. <laughs> Starbucks is bouncing. Yeah, exactly. Night, yeah. Like, so, yeah, but like, and that's where you have the meaningful conversations. Like, because if you go out and there's alcohol involved after a few drinks, it goes, it just goes down a certain road where it's, you know, but at least with the coffee or the tea, you're having a chat and people have a chance to talk about something that might be on their mind. Do you know? A couple last questions, uh, David. Yeah. So we talked about the stresses there in life that we all face and things that piss us off. Um, I tend to meditate a lot or try to. I don't know whether I'm good or bad at it or not, but it, it does help. Do you, mm-hmm. Is that anything you do or, or how would you... I think everybody meditates in some shape or form, maybe not just sitting on a chair yeah. and breathing, but is there certain go-to things that you do to, to kind of get your get out of your head maybe? Yeah, well, funnily enough, um, lately, something I decided to do in my classroom with the children is mindfulness. Oh, yeah. So um, we started that um, a while back, uh, few months ago i suppose now at this stage and um so i suppose it's not something i had read around it and i had read about it and so on but um we started practicing with the children and they absolutely love it so it's gas now because um we do it for five about five or six minutes every morning Mm. and i just like i have stuff there's resources out there there's websites or there's uh youtube clips yeah so we just sit in our classroom and we're mindful and we like I'm, i'm very i suppose i'm i want to teach the children about ways to manage the stresses and the anxieties that can come in life and um, I suppose to give them tools for when they're older mm. and it's fantastic now because parents have come to me and said that they ins- the children are insisting that they sit down at home and right. do a little bit of mindfulness yeah. uh, which is fantastic so that's something that I suppose I've started to do with the children but then it's it's followed me home then and I'm doing little bits at home um, yeah. of mindfulness as well um, meditation not so much I've u- I use sleep meditation sometimes um, I find especially if I'm coming up to big games or maybe the night before big games, I tend to just go on to YouTube and find something and listen to it and it helps me get to sleep or helps mm. me just to unwind. Yeah. Um, I find as well in terms of being mindful or in terms of that, like for me, sport is, is brilliant. Like I find in if you're in a game, you know, if you're playing a game, if there's a ball coming to you at 100 miles an hour, if there's a fella flying down the wing and you're you're trying to catch him, you can't but be present in that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't worry about anything else. Yeah. So I find for me, sport is like huge. Like mm. exercise is huge for me as well. Like I find exercise, you know, I feel a lot better physically and mentally if I do something each day or most days. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, I never come out, I never finish a training session feeling worse than I started or I never come out of the gym feeling worse than I started mm-hmm. and obviously there's chemical reactions that happen in your body when you exercise and so on but yeah. apart from that you just feel great about yourself you feel like you've done something or achieved something um, you're making me feel bad now because I haven't gone to the gym for a week because of my back so <laughs> ah, well, look, I know. you have an excuse yeah, yeah, you have yeah. an excuse um, um, so yeah that would be like a bit of mindfulness touching a little bit of meditation um, exercise they'd be my that's what I usually use yeah one of the episodes I interviewed a uh, head of our coaching course in Dublin, Andrew McLaughlin, and he does meditation, mindfulness, and he's mentioned that it's to make it become a, a change even in your brain, it mm-hmm. takes six weeks, and once yeah. you're doing it six weeks, yeah. it's kind of like exercise. If you don't do it, you kind of notice something's missing. Exactly. You're, you're into the habit. I think getting kids to do it yeah. is like 
there, I, I don't know if it started or there's there's a conversation going around about that as a, a program. There is, yeah. And I think there is, and like it's, it's funny when I started that with the children, you know, um, and you'll have it with adults. Like the first day we did it, there's a lot of giggling and there's a lot of you mm. know, like what are we doing? And then now the children are reminding me that we haven't done it or that yeah. we've forgotten to do it that morning or if we're doing maths or Irish or whatever. So we well, we've got to do our mindfulness. And like, yeah. I just think that's brilliant. And like, again, I'm just trying to give them something to, I suppose that they can build into their uh, routines, or especially for when they get older, that will help them to just maybe yeah. unwind. And um, maybe. Do you notice a difference even? In yeah, the, you, you totally. The, you can the see it. In the class. You can see it. Yeah, you can see it in the classroom. Um, you know, immediately, obviously things are calmer. Um, and I find that the children are more settled throughout the day and that they, I suppose they, talk easier then as well. <laughs> well, yeah, but yeah. they, they're just, they're just, and they, they're more focused and they're, they're better able to get down to their, their other work, which is fantastic. Okay. Yeah. So looking ahead, maybe what's, what's your goals, targets for the, the, the near term, mm. the long term, and even on top of that, do you have a, a process for setting a goal and reaching it um i think it's fairly organic for me like like in terms of my sporting goals now i have areas i need to work on with my with my game with amputee football um i used to play center half i kind of started playing on the wing a little bit i know with the new manager in place i think he has uh, he has me in mind for center half again so like I suppose I spent a while kind of working on the the I suppose the skill set for for a wing for playing on the wing and so on. Now I'm going to have to start fine tuning back into like being a defender. So I suppose I build all that into my training. Then I start thinking about that a little bit. So in terms of sporting goals, I have um, we have a tournament in Poland at the end of June. Um, so that's kind of like a warm up tournament for the Euros. So are coming into the stage now where I'm going to have to start fine tuning my training towards that. Mm. Uh, it's kind of hard because what I find hard anyway personally is to peak like we get guidance around that but I'm now trying to peak for June and then drop off a bit and peak again for October so like that's that's kind of my sporting goal and that's the challenge for me there Mm. Um, as I've mentioned a few times um, something that's happened lately is just this venture into motivational speaking which has happened as much by accident as anything else and but it's something i'm very passionate about and something that i'm really enjoying so mm. i'm in the process of um setting up a website at the moment um where people can get in touch with me and um you know I, i'd be i'm just it's something I, i'm passionate about i'd like to get involved more in um if the opportunities arise yeah. um so there i suppose i don't really have I don't like to answer your question on in terms of goal setting. I suppose at the start of the year, I do what everyone does and I make a few New Year's resolutions. And I would be good in terms of like, I usually try and write those down and I would check in every now and again to see mm. how I'm doing or like what I need to work on. or. Um, but I suppose I do set goals, but I set a few kind of broad goals and then they're kind of fine tuned as things develop and as the year goes on, do you know? Mm. Yeah. Cool. I think you have to write it down for it yeah. to happen, and then yeah. much more likely to happen. Exactly. Um, we'll finish up maybe just on advice. Is there any piece of advice that you've been given that that, that sticks out with you mm. over the years that uh, that's kind of helped yeah. you in any yeah, in many well, ways? Um, I suppose it's just more the message, really. That um, like the message I kind of want to impart is that. 
there's always hope, you know. Um, I think that for me, I suppose, you know, when I was going through what I went through, if I was told that I'd be sitting here now at 34 years of age with yourself having a chat about <laughs> about things like this and mental yeah. health and about my story and about building resilience, you know, I would have bitten your hand after that. I Like, I didn't even know if I was going to see 34 years of age. Mm-hmm. And um, my message would be, you know, maybe not so much in terms of, of advice, but just that to realize and appreciate that no matter how dark or how bleak things seem, there is always hope. Um, and I suppose, like, thankfully, I'm living and walking proof of the fact that there's hope. Like, I was laying in a hospital bed in, in Dublin at 35 kg, you know, no hair, no leg, like one leg, you know, just a shell of a boy. And um, I've just been extremely fortunate in my life that I've been able to turn it around and uh, that I've I've gone on to achieve things that I'm proud of. Um, so just that message of positivity and I suppose equally to to reach out if, if you're not feeling okay or if you're going through difficulties, that there's so much help there now. Um, it's just a matter of reaching out if you are going through anything like that. And just initiating that conversation with somebody you trust, do you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose as well, like my, my parents would have taught me to be very grounded as well, you know, like have to be practical as well and realistic. And <clears throat> education is a huge part of what I'm passionate about. Um, and that would come from home where we were, you know, I suppose, especially for me, like when I, before I lost my leg and before I was ill, I might have been leaning towards other professions. Um, whereas now, I suppose I realized that I had to use my intellect and I had to study and I had to work. And I mean, that's something I'm trying to impart to my students now as well. Like your schooling and your education is so important. Hmm. Um, and it, it does, whether we like to admit it or not, it does shape, it it can shape the rest of your life in terms of the path that you choose. Um, I suppose how hard you work, how, how, how willing you are to put in the hard work. Um, so I would just advise all the young people out there just to it's not easy but just keep the head down and, and keep working hard and just to keep education at the center of what you're what you're about um as one of your strands anyway of what you're what you're about um in your personal life because it's it's so important perfect cool david i really appreciate the the time no, uh, no, it's been a pleasure going through the story uh for me as as is always the case during these definitely have some things that I take away from it and there's been consistent things in a lot of the episodes um, but there's certainly been some new ones here uh, mm. fair play to you thanks very much uh, well, it's been a pleasure keep, and thanks uh, for the opportunity yeah keep keep going good luck <laughs> in the in the Euros in, in October October yeah. Um, yeah in Turkey and you said the website is getting set up is there any you know, I suppose this will probably go out in a couple of weeks. Is there any way, any, if you want to, people want to reach out, to get in yeah. touch with you? So look, I'm, yeah, look, a good friend of mine is in the process of setting up a website and that's mainly going to be centering around um, motivation and speaking and being able to get in contact I'm a bit about what, who I am and what I do. Um, I suppose in the interim, um, if people wanted to get in touch with a view to doing some of the motivation and speaking or in terms of arranging um appointments or whatever for that my i have an email which is young so it's y-o-u-n-g and saunders my surname s-a-u-n-d-e-r-s at yahoo.ie all one word and um i'm on twitter then at david saunders 82 and uh as much as i give out about social media i'm on it myself but it's it's i suppose There's it's a podcast i listened to, to to the other day the guy was you know they were bashing it but they were both mm. on it and he said 
it can be so positive. There it can, can be so yeah. many benefits yeah. of it if it's used the right way. If it's used the right way, yeah, exactly. You know, so yeah, I think that's the the key to what what is the right way and how to actually use it in the right way. And you know, from that perspective, I, I wouldn't uh, would not have it. You know, yeah, oh, absolutely, you can, you can uh, influence people positively that way. So. Can I just remind people as well just about the Irish Amputee Football Association website? So, like, mm-hmm. we've we've a website just www.irishamputeefootballassociation.com. Mm-hmm. We're also on Facebook uh, at Irish Amputee Football Association. We're on Twitter as well um, at Irish Amp Football. Okay. And look, that's a huge motivation for today as well was just to get the word out there about amputee football. Mm. Like this is a sport that has completely changed my life and helped yeah. to reshape my life. And look, mm. if there's people out there, potential players, anybody that wants to get involved in any level, mm. please get in touch because we're always looking for people and we do need help and support, you know, if we yeah. can get it. And if somebody was a potential player but was, God, that's, that's mm. just going to be too difficult for me to get into. I'm never going to be able to do it. You know, what what advice would you say for around that? Like, it, what's, is there a barrier for entry? How can they no, can like, get in? It's, what we find is we do struggle sometimes to get people to the first session because they are, like, they look at us, they might look at us online or see that we're at a certain level. But we find generally if we can get people to the first session that they're hooked and they love it. Mm. And as well, like, we don't just plunge people in to do the same training that we are doing. Like there's a kind of a development squad where they'll be starting at a different level. We also have a junior academy, which is something I wanted to mention. So we have children between the ages of like five to maybe 15, 16, where they come into the senior squad. So children who have had amputations or have been born without a limb. Um, So we have a junior academy of people. If there's any parents out there or teachers that have maybe somebody in mind for that, please get in touch because we're always looking for like, the junior academy builds into our senior squad and so on. And again, like if I had something like that at that age, it would have made such a difference for me. Unfortunately, I didn't discover it until I was 29, I think, mm. uh, five years ago now or six years ago at this stage. Mm. So look, that's out there as well. Um, so I just wanted to make people yeah. aware of that, you know. In the notes, when I put up for the episode, I put all those links in as well. Great. So people can just click on it from from the from the episode. So it'll be perfect. Pretty easy. Yeah, that's perfect. Great. David, thanks so much. Not at all, Rob. Thanks for the opportunity. I yeah. really appreciate it. No, it's yeah. a great, great, great story. And thanks for, for sharing it. Not at all. Really all right, folks. It. Thanks. Hopefully you enjoyed that. I'll talk to you again soon. Hey, folks. So you're at the end of another episode. Thank you so much. I'm recording a new exit. Uh, for those of you that have listened to previous episodes, you uh, probably notice. If not, it's a new one. I'm now into double figures of shows. So I am giving some thanks back to those that have given me feedback to help me improve the show again i know there's so much more that we can do and that will really be down to the feedback i get so please keep that coming as you're aware or if not you're going to be there's lots of ways you can get in touch you can email me at rob at robofthegreen.ie go to the website there's a page for comments i've got a few but i'd love so many more Uh, i'm on twitter at robofthegreen also on instagram at the handle Rob of the Green Facebook page I would love to see more likes on that and that's Rob of the Green as well as I said before I'm in Cork as you've just probably listened to one of the episodes you know a bit about me if you have questions about me or anything at all you'd like to share I am all ears and look forward to hearing that so I wanted to wrap it up there thanks again so much please let your friends know about the 1% Better podcast if there's been one thing that you've taken on board from the show so far that you've applied 
and that has actually made a difference in your life, that would be hugely enjoyable for me to hear that. This is why I'm doing it. It's a great journey so far. I feel it's only really starting. And thanks to you, uh, the listeners, it's growing in popularity. So look, thank you. Have a great weekend. Have a great week. And please come back for some more episodes. Thanks. Bye.